Podcastle 117 for August 10th, 2010. The Wages of Salt by Deborah Kalin. Rated R for violence and gore. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, and do we have a story for you this week? I guarantee you, after hearing this story, many of you are going to be so overcome by the adventure, mystery, and terror of this week's episode, you're going to do something crazy. You're all going to sign up for grad school. Okay, maybe I'm being a bit over the top, but seriously, why don't we ever hear more about higher learning and fantasy worlds? Sure, we've got Hogwarts, Break Bills, the Vampire Academy, and others. You've got the Learned Society of York Magicians, but like Jonathan Strange proved, those guys were all just a bunch of theoretical pansies. A lot of time, heroes get stuck with awesome mentors who teach them how to use their powers or whatever along the way. Tim Hunter's taken on by a group of magicians in Neil Gaiman's Book of Magic, Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan, but that's more one-on-one seat-of-your-pants experience. I'm talking about organized fieldwork people. What happens after you graduate from Hogwarts? Voldemort's been defeated, sorry, spoiler alert, and now it's time for Harry to stop messing around, buckle down, and study to become an R. But that bit gets skipped over, and instead, we get an epilogue. Some authors do cover this territory, at least a little bit. I've been rereading China Mieville's The City in the City, and I really dig when the investigation goes to the grad school in Okoma, and the archaeological site there. And not to take anything away from that book, it's an amazing read, even more so the second time, but all of that is seen through the eyes of our police detective protagonist. I know there's got to be other stories out there, and I hope you'll drop by our forums to tell us about them. Maybe it's because we remember what Indiana Jones said. 70% of the study of archaeology is done in the library. Research, reading, we cannot afford to take mythology at face value, and X never ever marks the spot. Doesn't sound too thrilling, does it? Okay, Dr. Jones, we know how well that worked out for you, so this week, all of us at Podcastle are taking you out of the library, leaving school behind, and going into the field to further your education in the exploration of Fantasy's Borderlands with The Wages of Salt by Deborah Kalin. The Wages of Salt was originally published in Postscripts magazine, and it earned an honorable mention in Ellen Datlow's Best Horror of the Year, Volume 2. That's right, kids, this field trip will be a bit dark, and as I mentioned in the rating, despite an adventurous spirit, there will be blood, so be warned. Author Deborah Kalin was once addressed by a recruitment agency as Chang Soon, no matter how often she corrected them. A resident of the east coast of Australia, she shares a birthday with Pablo Picasso, was born in the year of the fire dragon, collects books beyond her ability to read them, don't we all? and once worked in an aluminum smelter where a sparrowhawk routinely ripped pigeons to pieces on a lamppost just outside the cafeteria. She mostly didn't eat the meat at this cafeteria. You can visit her online and find her blog at debracalen.com. And check out her book Sparrowbound, which came out in July. This week's story is read to you by a new voice here at Podcastle, but one I'm already excited to hear again. Rashida Smith is your tour guide for this outing. She's a fiction writer and cellist who lives in the Pacific Northwest, so please give her a great big podcastle welcome, and make sure she reads the pamphlet so we don't lose her in one of the cross-hatched areas at her dig. So grab a shovel and get ready for a different kind of all-night study session, and enjoy the story. The Wages of Salt by Deborah Kalin
To avoid attention, we scavenge during the day. Beneath the zenith sun, burnishing the soil sweeping out beyond the horizon and raising a white glare from the salt pan, we were safest. It was a time when the theriomorphs stayed holed up in the rocks on the pan's western shore, away from the heat which made them slow and inattentive as drunkards. We started late in the morning and finished early in the afternoon. At night, we camped halfway back to the walls of New Persia and kept our fires inside the tents to remain hidden. It was hardly ideal. The heat took its toll on us, too. No matter how many bladders I poured down my gullet, the back of my throat was always dry and creaking. The few fossickers I'd found daring or desperate enough to work did so with dull eyes and sluggish, imprecise cuts. I'd seen men oppressed by a head full of last night's fumes with more energy. And so far, we dug up only an endless stream of ammonite fossils, pottery shards, discarded amulets, and salt. It didn't bode well for the prospect of a bonus, and that didn't bode well for morale. We could have made a similar haul, faster and without danger, at an abandoned pan. With every shifted glance and every mutter stilled as I passed, I counted the money I had left against the seconds trickling past. My boots raised unexpected refractions in the corner of my vision with every step, a white dazzle like settling fireflies. Our feet set up a singing in the soil as we walked, a hypnotic squeak and shift, and the bitter smell of hot salt burned in the back of my throat. The wind curled the tops of the dunes and swept grains from the rock spires. Nothing else moved. I wiped a hand across my brow, smearing a prickle of salt over my skin, and said, I could send some of them back with the hall so far. Beside me, Harim paused to toe at the ground. In three scuffs, he'd unearthed a scrap of leather, bleached by sun and salt, the sole of a shoe from its shape. He abandoned it, and we walked on. Adrenaline kept my muscles taut as I scanned the dark tumble of rocks to the west for movement. They'd take the profits and march right back for the bonus they think you're stiffing them, he said. Meanwhile, the ones who stay will realize soon enough you've no sheaves left to pay them. No, Alicia, you stay with the hall, which means we go back as a group, and we do it soon. You're begging for a slit throat any other way. Squatting to examine a buried shadow, I nodded. There was no academic or scientific value in salt. It would not advance my thesis, nor bring any glimmer of knowledge about the theriomorphs, but it would sell. White gold, the economic cornerstone of New Persia. I brushed at the crust. Dirty grains clung to the sweat of my palms. The shadow underneath, too clean-edged to be a phantasm, didn't change. Here, I said, help me. It'll just be another ammonite. But he knelt and sat to scraping beside me. My fingers touched cloth. I jerked back, staring at the dark linen we'd uncovered. Suspicion lifted the hairs on my nape and I dug faster, harder, in danger of damaging the specimen with haste. An arm emerged from the salt. Beside me, Harim had uncovered a knee. Working feverishly now, we followed the contours, salt flying from our fingers, until the entire body lay bare to the sky. Harim let out a low whistle. Now this, he said. We'll fetch a fiefdom. I choked back bile. It was a boy, dark hair crusted with salt, eyes closed and bronze skin made pale by burial. He wore a linen gown, the ties at his throat pulled awry. His legs and arms where they emerged from the gown were taut, 
and thin-skinned, the bones close to the surface. In one hand, he clutched a small leather pouch, identical to any of a thousand other protective charms bought and sold in the markets of New Persia, and equally ineffective. An ammonite, the largest I'd ever seen, nestled against the boy's flank. You'd better be talking about the fossil, I said. The boy's mine, and he's not for sale. Harim hawked and spat. How'd you know I say that? Because you understand the value of knowledge can't be counted in coins? Wait, I added, before he could disturb the body. Leave it a moment. Alessia, he said, but I waved him silent. Pulling a wad of paper from the pocket of my jalaba, I turned a clean sheet and quickly sketched in the details. There was no time to be particular, true, but neither was there reason to ignore what the grave itself could tell us. The placement and lack of any markings, I explained as my pencil worked. I glanced back the way we'd come, trying to estimate the grave's position. The shallowness of the grave, the fact that he's holding his amulet, not wearing it, the lack of artifacts. I broke off, wondering if the ammonite counted. Probably just coincidence. The fossils were everywhere. It's all important. This, I thought, was a boy who had been witched away, supped upon, and discarded where he fell. Important or not, we don't have time to squander. He jerked his chin to indicate the sun's position, dropping toward the western rocks. Behind us, the fossickers were quitting the field. What's more valuable, the boy or a picture of him in his grave? Fine, I said, graceless as I shoved the papers back into my pocket. I'll study the grave tomorrow. Help me get him back. The boy was slight enough, all bones and skin, and Harim scooped him up without effort. Salt rained down from the fragile body. Ugh. Harim wrinkled his nose and gingerly held the boy close. You owe me new clothes when we get back to town. The Vossikers were all for returning to the city, and its markets, without delay. The prospect of riches had banished their surliness and restored the brash personas they trotted out at market. Laughter rattled up to the glittering sky, and their teeth, chipped to fine points, flashed white and dark faces. Their long fingers moved as if already counting sheaves in their coffers. My refusal to leave stilled it all. I need to study the grave, I said, in answer to the warning look in Harim's eye. It could be the key to understanding what ties the theriomorphs to the salt pans. It didn't sway them, of course, but I knew it would. Besides, who knows what else is out there still to be found? One more day won't hurt. Mollified by the thought, the fossickers acceded. Harim shook his head as they dispersed. You want to watch out, he said. You might not like the knowledge you find. I scoffed. Philosophy, my friend? I thought you had no time for university types and their fripperies. The pans will change a person, he said. All that white gets under your skin. He flicked a glance behind me, to the boy. The change isn't always for the better. I turned to the boy. Laid out on a canvas which had previously seen duty as an onager's blanket, he stared at the sky. Salt still clung to him in places, imparting a faint illusion of glittering in the afternoon heat. Sometime during the walk back, I taken to calling him Saul. I lifted my hand, but stopped short of touching him. He didn't smell, except of dry soil. Gaunt though he was, no sign of decay or putrefaction had set in either. The preservative powers of the salt, perhaps? That, and probably only recently interred. I drew my hand back, rubbing the pads of my fingers together as if scrubbing off the touch I hadn't dared. I should try to find his parents. 
They'd no doubt like to know his fate and to see him decently cremated. Daylight faded, and night turned the pans to a silver and purple vista while I sat. The muttering glow of my oil lamp gave Saul more color. Somehow, he looked more unnerving than he had out on the sun-washed salt. He could almost be sleeping. When I found myself wanting to cover him against the settling chill, I scrambled to my feet and ducked out of my tent. Maybe food would settle me, head and stomach both. The small noises of the night washed over me. A pitter-patter like the fall of grain as the desert mice ventured forth behind a dribble of sand. The whisper of the wind, bringing the faraway scent of date palms cooling by a soak well. Closer at hand was the quiet murmur of conversation from the fossickers. From the west, subtle and regular as a heartbeat, almost too low to hear, a throb rolling across the pans. Curling my feet against the vibration, I breathed in time with the beat, lungs tight in anticipation of the next strike. The swelling sound stilled our camp in waves, drawing attention westward. I squinted, faint and formless, as if the moonlight played hide-and-seek behind scuttling clouds, shadows boiled and raced across the silver pans. But the horned moon stood clear in the velvet sky, and the shadows held glints in their depths. The shine of sulfurous yellow flame and the gleam of moonlight off sharp steel edges. Attack! The cry came from behind me, rousing the camp. Fossickers bolted from their rest like ants from a kicked nest. Not quick enough. The theriomorphs poured toward our camp like shadow made flesh, a tide of faces both bone pale and dark and elongated, stretched forms drawn from nightmare. There were horns, slender and curved as the edge of a blade, lengths of flank, sleek as a gazelle, shoulders as powerful as a bull. Large and small, their eyes caught the light of our fires and torches and threw it back in a green gleam. I staggered backwards. A moment later, my wits caught me up, and I turned and ran. Two fossickers had shouldered bows and now stood loosing bolts into the tide of creatures. The rest scrambled for whatever makeshift weapons they could find. Spades and salt picks and trowels. I ran for the tent and saw. Harim was already there, bundling the boy in canvas with expert hands. I grabbed his swathed feet while Harim took his shoulders. Together we ducked back outside, into chaos. Theriomorphs swarmed past us, hooves and eyes and horns flashing in the light of the scimitar moon. One loomed out of the darkness as I straightened. A female, with the narrow muzzled face and large, tender ears swiveling. She looked like a woman caught midway between human and doe opening her muzzle to reveal sharp pointed teeth and a thick blue tongue. She brayed at me. Take him! Harim shoved the canvas-wrapped bundle toward me. I caught it awkwardly. No matter how I wrapped my arms around it, some heavy end bobbed free, dragging at me. Harim snatched up a spade and thrust it at the theriomorph. She reared back, braying again. I kept running. The loose sand sucked at my heels and ankles, and Saul's weight, slight as it was, drove me down, miring me. My toes snagged on something and I went down in a sprawl. Spitting sand, my fingers found a jalaba tacky with blood and cooling flesh beneath it as I pushed upright. Gagging, I hauled Saul's swathed corpse after me and kept running. From behind came a squeal and the fossickers grunt. Moments later, he caught me up. I didn't ask. I threw him a look made desperate by my straining lungs. We can't outrun them. We don't need to. Unburdened, he was pulling ahead. 
Reaching the Onagers, he dived for the saddlebags of his own, a creature improbably named Iliad. As I scrambled to his side, he emerged, clutching two small spheres of dark gray clay. Smoke bombs, he said. Sling the boy over Iliad here and keep running. We'll catch you up. I didn't argue. The onager grunted and pinned his ears back as I slumped Saul over his back, but he picked up his hooves without balking. The bombs cracked as they hit the ground, setting off geysers of black smoke like the hissing of angry wyverns. The Reomorph screamed, jagged sounds tearing the night. Looking back, I saw them reeling, limbs human and animal held up to protect hearing eyes. A handful more bolts sang through the air. One grazed the shoulder of a heron-like creature and sent it spinning. Another pinned an apparently normal goat to the sand. Emerging from the smoke, Bowman had his side. Harim set the sand behind his heels and ran. Bossickers all around me, and Saul bouncing on an onager's back, I turned my face toward the dark smear on the horizon that was the safety of New Persia and her walls, and did likewise. We were all flagging by the time we reached the outermost walls, great slabs of red stone made black by night, standing spans taller than man or theriomorph. There were three entrances within sight, plain square openings and not to distinguish between them. Harim steered us past all three, and two more like, before finding one he deemed suitable. Safety seemed to close around us with the walls, and we slowed to a walk. A little further in, Harim said, and then we can afford to rest. He led the way, steering through a snarl of corners and openings without hesitation. The narrow breadth of the lanes forced us into a long line. Iliad naturally gravitated toward Harim, and I, determined not to leave Saul, followed. Sunk behind the thoughts of two men dead because of my decision, I said nothing. The Fossaker, however, seemed in the mood for talk, and the look in his eye, calculating as a basilisk, did not bode well. Exactly how deep are your university's pockets, I ask, he added, when I didn't immediately reply. Because after today's haul, they'll be expecting a bonus they can retire on. Doubt and fatigue made my laugh shaky. No one who works a dig for the university expects to retire at the end of it. He eyed me askance. Do you have any idea what that boy is worth? It's always money with you lot, isn't it? The knowledge we might glean. He named a price that made my throat close, like stones choking a river in its bed. You're like a shrew mouse, he said. Always digging, growing fat on your findings, but never satisfied. Always looking for some elusive truth. In the end, Alicia, there is only the one... Everything and everyone is a commodity, and all commodities have a price. Life doesn't. People kill for money, he said, and we're returning home two men short. Had called that a pretty strong argument to the contrary. I swallowed hard. It didn't banish the sour taste left by his words. Sooner or later, one way or another, the boy will be sold. If he's not stolen from an unprotected display cabinet, he'll be pawned the next time the university needs income. The only way you win is by selling him first, Harim said. That way, you control the market and the conditions of the sale, one of which would be to keep him available for your studies. You're talking about a museum? I dug my fingers into Iliad's wiry hide, wanting to believe the Fossaker had no fiscal motivation in this. The calculations running behind his eyes wouldn't let me. If you want, a private collector would pay more. He tipped his head to the side, measuring the moment. I have contacts. People who value knowledge and science, the same as you. 
They'd bleed sheaves for a chance to own a specimen like this. Think of the extra expeditions it would fund. The pieces fell together in my head. His eagerness to leave the pans earlier. The smoke bombs. He had contacts among the collectors. A specimen like this. You knew what we'd find. His eyes were flat and dark as wet slate. I've worked all the pans around New Persia for the university and for the profiteers, he said, as if that were explanation enough. Sour horror climbed in my throat. You've dug up bodies before. He considered me down the length of his nose. My sister was lost to the theriomorphs, he said. She was twelve, and she vanished from her bed. I said nothing. Stories of children lost to the theriomorphs were like the ammonite fossils. Everyone had their own. I thought of her when I dug up my first body. It was maybe ten years old from the size, decayed down to the bones. For all I know, maybe it was her. She was small for her age. He shrugged. I knew the answer, but I asked anyway. What did you do? Sold her, he said, and a dozen like her, after. Once I found a theriomorph corpse, almost as intact as our boy here. His grin was like scar tissue in his leathery face. Earned me so much I still haven't spent it all. The idea left me sick, and it must have showed. They've taken scores of our children over the years, Harim said. Consider it payback, if it's easier. He belongs to the university. My voice emerged flat from rubbery lips. He's not for sale. Scarcity is a large part of market value, he said with a shake of his head. Let's hope he hasn't rotted into a common corpse before you come to your senses. Sleep eluded me when we paused to rest. The dark magnified every noise, real and imagined. Every time drowsiness lowered my eyelids, the doe woman's bray startled me awake. I sat, staring into the dark, listening to the distant creak as the train tracks contracted in the cooling night. Sometime after I turned my thoughts away from Harim's impossible truths for the hundredth time, there came a new sound. A scuffle of approaching feet, and a flurry of voices pitched low and urgent. A sting of adrenaline brought me to my feet, opening the lantern shutters as I rose. The sudden light revealed half-dozen fossickers, hands up and eyes narrowed, gathered around Saul's inert form. One had hold of the swathed ankles. Another, Mishael Parnassian, cradled his shoulders. Slow and careful as a man facing a bronze viper, Mishael slid his hands free and straightened. Leaving so soon, I asked. Nobody moved. They could run the numbers as well as I. Six against one wasn't exactly in my favor. True, I'd spent my time on digs and done my share of hauling heavy artifacts. But so had they. Michelle penned me with a dark stare, hawked and spat, raising a spatter of dust. Those men died, he said, for you. I met his stare without flinching. Others were stirring now, blinking awake to the light and the noise. Witnesses were good. They shifted the power back in my direction. They left wives and children behind, Mishael added. I strove to keep my voice level. Their fee will be paid out to their families, as per university policy. Paid out? He spat again, flicked a gaze over my shoulder to measure the gathering crowd. A paltry dig fee. You could always dig for the profiteers, I said. 
They pay better than the university, provided you survive. Mishael jabbed a finger toward Saul. That boy's worth more than all our dig fees pooled together. We found him. We died finding him. He's ours by right. Footsteps sounded behind me, but I didn't turn. Six attempting theft in front of me, and two dead on the salt pans, left seven at my back. The margins were far too narrow to falter. Actually, I recall digging him out myself. My fingertips still buzzed with the faint memory of scraping away clods and clumps of salt. Your contract stipulated a fee for the dig and nothing more. The boy belongs to the university. He scowled. Spoils should be split. His sale would see us fed for a year or more, all of us. The knowledge he brings could see our children safe for decades to come, I countered. It wasn't a strong argument, not among this crowd. A couple of the would-be thieves shuffled where they stood, then a murmur rose from the fossickers behind me, but it was pale and quickly stilled. Could, Michelle sneered around the word. What good is your knowledge if we're starved in the meantime? Money was always the final argument with fossickers. So be it. For now at least the numbers were on my side. I fished a small leather pouch from the sash belted around my hips. Turning, I tossed it to Harim. He caught it. Your services are no longer required, I said, turning back to Michel and his fossickers. Harim will see you're paid out. No bonus, though. I'll split it among your more honest colleagues. A scatter of indrawn breaths behind me spoke of surprise and elation. A bonus went further among seven than thirteen. One of Michel's fossickers pushed forward. You can't fire us. We finished the dig, another cried. So did every other man here. They, however, didn't try to steal. Now collect your fee and go. Silence held everyone still. A heron's croaking call drifted out from the city streets. Michel's thieves searched among their fellows for support, but found only closed faces. Harim broke this moment by stepping forward, his hand dipping into the pouch for the university's tokens. The fossickers accepted the wooden promise of payment with dark, sullen glints in their eyes. Michel snapped his fist shut, but not before I noted Harim had overpaid him. I said nothing of it. Harim would have to work with these men in the future. We earned more, Michel said. I gave him my frostiest smile in return. Don't get lost in the lanes now. There are theriomorphs outside. Spitting at my feet, he turned and strode away, stained jalaba flapping around his ankles. I sighed, the tension leaking from my tight lungs and leaving them rubbery. I suppose it's too much to hope he will lose his way. Harim didn't answer. Stepping over to the wall, I sat beside Saul, leaning my head back onto the gridded surface. Faint warmth still leaked from the stones. Squatting before me, Harim tossed back the pouch. This won't be the last of it, he said. You think they'll try again? Them, or others like it. Paying them out was quick thinking, but it won't work twice, any more, and the numbers will be against you. The remaining fossickers were drifting back to their pallets. Like moths beating around a candle flame, their furative glances kept flicking to the boy beside me. I squeezed my eyes shut against the inevitable. Set up your sail. With Saul taking up the surface of the bench, and Harim and three of his prospective collectors hovering over him, there was little room left. I stood in a quarter of my office, near Saul's head and Harim's samovar, and drank slug after slug of gin-soaked tea to drown my distaste for the sale. 
The smoky flavor dried the inside of my mouth, preserving and pickling me from the inside, until I wasn't sure if the fumes gathering under the top of my skull were from the samovar or from my stomach. The collectors, two men and a woman, were alike in their veneer of wealth. The woman wore the bronze necklet and armbands of a city official, and her smile revealed a diamond-studded tooth. One of the men sported an oiled goatee, while the other wore rings on every finger. He twisted them around his knuckles, first one hand and then the other. All three stared at Saul with an avaricious gleam in their eye. Harim turned to the samovar and poured out four slugs of tea. I shrank back into my corner, wanting no part of the transaction, yet unable to look away. Back and forth they traded sips and terms. A complicated auction haggled on three fronts. I didn't try to follow it. Instead, I turned my eyes to Saul, pale and wasted and moving. He gave a shiver and a jump, knocking his heels against the bench like a cat waking with a start. He sat up, cocked his head side to side and back and forth and leapt up into a crouch. Startled, the collectors jerked back. One of the men started a low, rapid chant to banish evil and backpedaled straight into me. Stepping sharp to avoid him, a table corner jabbed me in the spine. I jackknifed around the pane, knocking a lantern to the floor. The crash and clatter of glass and lead birthed a rush of startled flame. Harim cussed, a string that would blister a bat's ears. Saul set up a wail that bounced off the walls and rattled the windows in their casings. His bare arms were nothing more than tendons popping beneath bone-taut skin. His narrow, pointed teeth were white as salt in his black-tongued mouth. I found myself shushing him, hands out and pushing down. It made little difference. He paused only to haul in a new lungful of air. That, Harim said, eyes pinned on the boy, is the loudest corpse I ever saw. The weight of my misconceptions closed my throat, preventing any answer. A burial grounds, I had reasoned, or a place of testing, littered with the corpses of those who had failed and been discarded. Faulty reasoning, built on a foundation of preconceived judgment. On the upside, calculations lit Harim's eyes. He'll fetch a higher price this way. Saul stopped his clamor. My heartbeat thudded in the sudden silence. Fixing us with a narrow stare, he hissed, low in the back of his throat. Fingers and toes curled around the lip of the bench, he launched at us like a bat erupting from its perch. Ropey arms wide, linen nightgown flapping at his flanks, his eyes stretched large above the drum-taut cheeks. I jerked to the side, too slow. One of his legs clipped me in the flank, used me for purchase as he pushed off to my left, driving me to the floor. The hard tile slammed my lungs against my spine. Tongues of flame still curled and flickered in the slick of spilled lantern oil. Their acrid smoke stung tears from my eyes and burned the back of my throat as I retched for air. Behind me, Saul tucked his shoulder and slithered past Harim, under and past his reach and out the door. The fossicker yanked himself into the corner by the door frame. I scrambled up, dodging the slower collectors, and pitched into a run. Ahead of me, Harim vanished around a corner. Legs pumping and lungs tearing, I caught up as he thrust wide the main doors, still swinging from Saul's escape, and burst out into the morning. Sunlight picked out red gleams in the gravel path and flashed off the water flowing in the fountain. 
A drake stood on webbed toes on the fountain's rim, beating its wings and honking in strident protest. Saul stood in the center of the path, rigid arms wide and head flung back, snarling at the sky. Tremors racked his form and a high, keening cry issued from his locked throat. It pulled passerby like a flock of birds brushed by a warm air current. They turned their heads and slowed their feet and drifted closer to watch. Not too close, however. The pain coursing through him kept us all at bay. The collector spilled outside in a cluster of limbs and a bright flash of precious metal, gems, and mercenary eyes. Mutters ran through the crowd, but no one asked what I most needed to know. How does a boy survive burial in the salt pan? Tendons writhed in Saul's arms, his fingers stretching with the creaking and popping sound, faint beneath his cry. His shoulders hunched beneath his gown, collapsing his neck. A dark, reddish pelt sheared through the skin of his hands and arms. Someone cried, He's morphing! The crowd drew back. Harim stepped forward. No need to worry, folks. His voice was calm and hearty, the perfect showman but he didn't take his eyes off Saul. I assure you, the boy is completely safe. Heat prickled across my skin, raising a sweat as the full truth dawned on me. Saul wasn't a human child, lost his way or lured to death. The salt pans weren't a cemetery. They were hatching grounds. And I had dug the hatchling up before his time. The transformation didn't hold. As quickly as the pelt had sprouted, it shrank again until only tufts and patches remained on the back of his hands, running down the back of his neck and vanishing under the gown. His fingers shrank to normal length with a snap that made him sob. A true theriomorph, Harim turned to the collectors, his face alight with enthusiasm and confidence. But unearthed early, so he can never grow into his full powers. A bonsai, if you will. This is a chance to own a piece of living history. Saul collapsed, knees and shoulders cracking on the ground as he crumpled. I tried to go to him, but Harim's snake-like grip on my wrist stopped me. Sell him and be done with it. I wrenched my arm free. This isn't about money anymore. It won't help, Alicia. It's too late for him now. His words made doubt squirm through my stomach, but I ignored it and pushed past to kneel at Saul's side. Fading tremors shook the boy's shoulders. At my touch, he lifted a face pinched by pain and hissed. The noise echoed in the hollow spaces of my heart like guilt. I took his hand and helped him to stand, his weight nothing more than sticks of dry kindling, loosely bound with rotting twine. I'm taking him home, I said. He's not for sale. Beside me, Saul walked as if his feet didn't touch the ground, as if the wind could bear him aloft at any moment. He was so slight, in the linen gown flapping the length of his flanks so broad that perhaps he could. Perhaps only my grip on his long, hollow-boned fingers kept him earthbound. The last lane opened into an avenue of wall buttresses and row upon row of laneways on either side, but ahead was a gateway onto burnished soil and glittering sky. A glimmer of white in the distance spoke of salt. Hardy, prickly plants clung wherever rock was to be found for an anchor, bitter black leaves soaking up the sunlight. Saul lifted his head as soon as we stepped free of the gate's arch, and a look of coming home gave his features new energy. He quickened his step, pulling free of my grip. Content to let him lead, I fell in behind. 
I could have let him find his own way. After all, he'd done it before. Fled the humans who'd raised him and given him a pouch of prayers to keep him safe. But I had unearthed him, brought him into breathing before his time. It was my task to see him home, back to his own. This time when I approached the pan, it was with a heart-pumping acid fear. Figures moved across the glimmering expanse of salt, their silhouettes not entirely human, stooping and straightening in an elaborate ballet. Once, only a day ago, I might have reasoned they were feeding. Now I knew what nestled in the salt. I knew better. Saul started running. The movement drew attention. Those theriomorphs closest to us stopped, raised their heads to watch him approach. One, possessing a burly-shouldered human chest above hind legs and cloven hooves of an ox, started forward to meet him. On the edge of the pan, another convulsion dropped Saul to the ground. Limbs twitching, tendons popping, throat choking shut on any sounds his exhausted lungs might summon. The ox man stopped, watched Sal for a moment, and turned away. Wait, I said. He looked around, eyes yellow and wild under heavy brows. Wait! I ran closer, taking the last few paces with my heart in my mouth, step by sweating step. From a distance, he looked a normal size. Up close, his massive bulk towered over me. A dark silken pelt covered his lower limbs, yet he still wore trues, ragged at the knees but otherwise in neat repair. Great curving horns erupted from his brow, curled up over his head and down his back, ending in small, upturned points like a girl's pigtails. He's one of yours, I said. The oxman said nothing. He needs help. Fear made me babble. I dug him up. I'm sorry. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't realize what would happen. I dug him up too early, and he can't... He can't transform. He was born before his time. I swallowed a hard, bitter lump. Yes. He must return to the salt. My pulse leapt with hope. Oh, oh, that's all right, then. I laughed, quick and shaky. I thought you were going to leave him. Yes, the oxman said. I groped for his meaning, rejected it. He couldn't. The salt will heal the boy, right? The oxman looked down and something that might have been pity crossed his features. It made him look even less human. This seed carries death, not life. If you are kind, he looked up, pinning me with his glance. You will end his fight. He turned away again. That's it? I cried. Saul's not dead yet. The oxman did not look back. He wishes he were. Hooves crunching through salt, the theriomorph left. I held up a hand as if to call him back, but the words died in my mouth. It's too late, Harim had said, and there was no longer any denying or ignoring what he'd meant. Already Saul was twitching one shoulder, a presage to another convulsion. I sank down beside him, took his hand in mine. The theriomorphs ignored us both. It's okay, I said. With my free hand, I eased the kanjar at my hip, free of its sheath. The straight, double-edged blade gleamed as it caught the sunlight, but Saul didn't notice. They're coming back, I told him, smoothing his spiky, salt-combed hair back from his face. 
Careful to keep it down by my thigh, I flipped the kajar, flexed my fingers around the grip. They'll take you and put you in their salt and hatch you anew. You'll see. Nodding my fingers in his hair, I brought the blade up and across his throat in one swift red movement. After, when his breath had failed and his blood had congealed to a halt, I carried his crippled form home. I had a thesis to write, after all. And welcome back. See, I told you last week that it'd be exciting. Kind of like a new Indiana Jones movie. Except one directed by David Fincher. Whatever's in the box, man, belongs in a museum. Until it comes back to life. Alright, let's turn back the clock and do some feedback quickly for another exciting tale. Podcastle 110, Aaron Cashier's The Alchemist's Feather. What's that? You don't remember what happened in the story because someone commanded you to forget? Well... Talia summed it up nicely. It's like Pinocchio with an evil Geppetto. Katie said, I especially adore a story that invites you to imagine what comes next, hinting but not drawing in the details. For me, I imagine Maria becoming a vengeance forest witch with a band of lost girl groupies that play with Alrun and wreak havoc on those who think they can hurt kids. After that story's been written, you can send it to submit at podcastle.org. We will be waiting. Scattercat said, I like the mouthlessness most of all. It verged on the eerie at times, of which I heartily approve. An electric paladin was into it so much, he actually cried, so... Score! Hey, you know what else? That very same electric paladin is getting married. This week. Really, electric paladin, what the hell are you doing listening to this podcast right now? You don't have time for this. You should be trying on clothes, buying presents, making trips to the airport doing other stuff. All that said, still, congratulations to both of you from all of us here at Podcastle. Just be wary of guided trips through the mines of Moriel on your honeymoon. On our forum, Electric Paladin said something very cool he and his fiancée are doing for the wedding, naming all the tables at the reception after locations in fantasy novels. It's probably too late to suggest new ones, like I said this week, but we came up with a killer list of possibilities on our forum. You can check them all out as well as feedback for all our stories at forum.escapeartist.net. While you're at it, drop by and say hi and let us know how we're doing. Redomancy's cool, just don't take any bodies out of the salt, alright? I'll tell you what you can leave behind, though. If you like what we're doing, please consider helping keep Podcastle legit by visiting podcastle.org and donating. Seriously, we can't do this without you all. We love sharing stories with you, and we want to continue to do so without having to take any shady meetings or making any back-alley deals we'd regret later on. We know times are tough, but if you can help us out, we would greatly appreciate it. Your donations help keep our authors paid and our costs covered. Every single cent helps. Thank you. That's all we have for this week, generous Theria Morris. Thanks for letting all of us here at Podcastle tell you another story. Let's see, in our exploration of the Borders of Fantasy Month, we started in the library, went out to study for a thesis. How about next week, we have a little bit of sugar from Cat Rambo. Until then, remember, it's not the years, baby, it's the mileage. We'll see you all in a week. 
Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. J.R.R. Tolkien said, There's nothing like looking if you want to find something. You certainly usually find something if you look, but... It is not always quite the something you were after.